Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello, folks. Uh, welcome to another episode of uh, Wisdom of Friends. This is episode 9, season 1. And I'm really delighted to be introducing you to a good friend of mine. His name is David Albert. And David is a co-founder and board chairman of Friendly Water for the World. In 2012, he retired from a career in public health took one day off to put new tires on and hasn't missed a day since. David was also the founder of New Society Publishers, is the author of 11 books, used to write a regular column called My Word for Life Learning Magazine, and is an amazing storyteller. He has also founded three foundations and has worked on and off in India for 40 years. A Quaker by faith, he is energized by his grounded activism and with a life lived well, he does not believe that burnout exists. He holds degrees from Williams College, Oxford University and the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago, but will trade any of them for exotic musical instruments. He likes sushi and salads but will eat sordid spiders in Cambodia. When I asked him about the vision for friendly water for the world, he said, our vision is of healthy, self-sustaining, empowered, peaceful communities, both here and abroad, sharing our knowledge with each other with life and hope, restored through clean water. This is a fascinating conversation, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, let's welcome the one and only David Olberg. So uh, hello, David. Uh, Welcome to another episode of our Wisdom of Friends show. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on this uh, call. And let me start off by saying, uh, I remember the first time that we met, and it was through a common friend of ours. It was Teresa Eskrik, who was part of my uh, self-expression and leadership program here in Seattle. And uh, she spoke very highly of you, and uh, we were looking uh, to uh, collaborate on uh, our nonprofit uh, Global Contribution Initiative, a yearly celebrating mastery event with another nonprofit, and... Uh, and she uh, spoke so highly of you that I ended up uh, driving all the way to Olympia to meet you right. and your board members. And and I must tell you, I walked away so inspired by the cause and uh, what you're doing and your team is doing in the in, in the world out there. And and so I really uh, admire your efforts and your team's efforts. And uh, finally, uh, uh, as part of the event that we did. We heard your speech, the community heard your speech, and uh, we really got to know uh, what an incredible man you are and what an incredible organization you lead and the kind of uh, fantastic uh, 
accomplishments that Friendly Water has done. So thank you again uh, for taking the time to be on this well, thank show. Thank you so much. You're too kind to me, but my team is absolutely incredible. Yes, indeed. Uh, yes, absolutely. So, David, uh, the way we start off our show is by asking our guest a simple question, and that is, what is your favorite quote or philosophy that you live by, and how have you applied it to your life? Uh, thank you so much. Uh, it's a great question. Um, the code I live by essentially is that we all deserve access to the basic necessities of life so that we can go, upon, go about our own spiritual and other searches. That without the necessities of life, we deprive people of that opportunity for which they were placed on this earth. Hmm. And, uh, and how have you applied it to your own life as far as this philosophy is concerned? Was that something that... Uh, that early on in your career or in your life that you were inspired by, or how did this come about for you? Well, for better or for worse, I'm too well educated. I spent a lot of time in school, and as all my colleagues were getting narrower and narrower, I tended to get wider and wider until I decided that I no longer needed the crutch of institutions. And I spent a lo long time trying to figure out what my unique contribution might be being my gifts. And I'm still looking for it, by the way. I'm only 67. Um, I, I, I continue to search myself, but most of what I get, I get from other people. I, I learned early that I'm a really smart guy, but I'm not the smartest guy in the room. And so I learned that the best way to get things done and to aid myself in my own spiritual and other searches is to latch on to something good when you see it. Latch on to the people who seem to have both the courage and conviction and the passion that moves them to do extraordinary things and, and then to take hold and hold on for dear life. Uh, that, that motivates me greatly. I, I learned that lesson very early. And, and it has served me very well. Mm, that's so inspiring. Uh, I would like to take a step back, David, and uh, walk down the memory lane with you. And, uh, okay. And just kind of like talk to you about your childhood and how. Mm. Uh, I'm curious as to uh, what did your parents do and how did that shape your life? Sure. Well, I grew up in New York City. I was born in the Bronx, grew up in Queens, went to school in Manhattan. My father was a failed accountant. He had uh, gone back to school on the GI Bill, failed accounting three times and became a relatively low paid bookkeeper. My mother was a housewife, although she, when I was about eight, she went back to school to become a school teacher. And uh, I, I joke with her to this day. She, she's 90 now, but I used to joke that uh, she talked to me like I was six until I was 40. Um, my household never wanted for food, mm. um, never wanted for clothing, never wanted for shelter, but we weren't well-to-do. But there was always a feeling that there was something more, and that was encouraged by my parents. Uh, although I have to say that I benefited greatly from large amounts of benign neglect. Mm. 
Could you uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, in those days, you know, there, there, there were no horrifics about latchkey children. Um, we were all latchkey children. I, I hardly knew anyone who wasn't. Hmm. Um, back in those days, uh, we um, did pretty well with our friends. We raised each other. Um, we came home for dinner. Uh, we played stickball on the streets of New York. I, I, I tell people that uh, I never was part of Little League. In those days, uh, first of all, it, was, it, it cost more than we could possibly afford it, have afforded. And secondly, we thought of Little League as being for sissies. Um, it had to be supervised by adults at all time. Um, you could be stuck out in left field for no particular reason. You might not play at all. It was all organized by adults. You never got to play with anyone who wasn't your own age. And with stickball, it was just the opposite. We made up our own rules. We didn't have umpires. Um, when you were six year old, years old and weren't allowed in the street, you, the fire hydrant was first base, so you could play for a space. Um, <laughs> when there were arguments, uh, we settled them by a rough consensus, as it were. Uh, you dropped in and out of the game if you were called off to dinner or whatever. People who'd moved away from the neighborhood would, would come by and come by just to play. Um, four sewers was a home run. And I learned a lot about collaboration, uh, cooperation, competition, not strong competition, and, and the value of learning from people who are more adept at particular skills than you are. Um, sooner or later, people would be learning from you. And I learned that at a very early age. It was a lesson, none of which I would have received in school. That's so great. Uh, so what I'm hearing you say is uh, the early uh, childhood years uh, shaped your life in terms of the the sport that you played with your colleagues and your childhood friends, and you learned the important lessons about collaborations and uh, competition and really uh, how to work together as a team and surrounding yourself with people who are smarter than you so that eventually you end up, uh, they end up getting your counsel somewhere down the road. So that's that's And not only to work together as a team, but to compete as a team. Yes. In- I mean, it was always a lively competition, which we enjoyed greatly. We didn't make too much of it. But we tried to excel as best we could. We also learned respect for property. I, I remember that uh, Mr. Fetterman's car, which was uh, beyond first base, was we liked Mr. Fetterman. So any ball that hit Mr. Fetterman's car was an automatic out. But there were other there were other automobiles in the neighborhood which were definitely in play. Wow, that's so creative at such a young age. <laughs> now to have the fire hydrant as first base and all mm. that—it's just uh, incredible. Uh, what I'm curious about, David, is one of the questions we often get from our audiences and uh, is uh, finding a passion, finding your purpose. And I'm looking at your bio, and it's such an incredible uh, background you have in terms of education. You're also the currently the co-founder and board chairman of Friendly Water for the World. You also were the founder of the New Society uh, Publisher a publishing company, and then uh, you also founded three other foundations. And uh, and one of the things that I noticed in your bio, you mentioned that uh, you do not believe that burnout uh, exists. And so the question is, how would you suggest that somebody, uh, a young man in his early 20s or 30s is, or even 40s, is unsure about what his calling is or what his purpose in life is or what his passion is, how would you recommend that they go about finding it? Well, the first thing I said, of course, if you find incredible people doing incredible things, latch on to them and, mm. and just 
come along for the ride. That's number one. And, and uh, the other things are sort of lead ups to that. Uh, I learned over time that uh, um, money doesn't count for much. All, in my early life, all good things happened to me when I ran out of money. Um, uh, so I learned that that, wasn't, that was a concern, but not a really big concern. I loved travel, and, and um, I would do as much, as, as much of it as I could on the cheap um, at, a, at a very, very early age. And uh, I encourage people always to do that, to widen your horizons as best you can. Meet people who are different than yourself, mm. who espouse views that are different from your own, um, who bring different viewpoints, different passions, different ideas to your environment, and see what fits and what doesn't. You, as you read my bio, you can see I was often toffing, tossing a lot of balls up in the air at the same time, or close to the same time, trying to find those which were really worth catching. Mm. That's, that's so great. That's such a profound uh, insight and uh, a valuable uh, wisdom right there for our audiences. Uh, so one of the things, having uh, interviewed many people, one of the common trends that we notice is that uh, – Success is often followed by or preceded by a lot of challenges and adversity. Uh, and I think in, 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 in another way, it basically shapes you to take on more challenges and bigger challenges and really uh, step up your game. So what I'm curious about is when you look back at your life, David, up until now, what would you say were some of the turning points or a couple of biggest challenges that you faced in your life? And how has that, those lessons from those adversities have helped you navigate life? That's a great question. And, and most of the struggles were internal. I mean, it is true that um, at one point when I was 57, uh, I had a heart attack and died and came back. And uh, that's been particularly wonderful because I learned that I have no fear. I mean, what is anyone going to do to me? Are they going to kill me? I've been there, done that. Um, you know, I've been dead, so I don't worry about death or anything like that um, happening to me. So that's, that's been a, a, a great joy. That, that was a physical challenge, as it were. Mm. Um, I think in my life, most of the challenges often come from the fact that I've gotten restless. Um, I, I, I founded a publishing company be, really because I wanted to write. And uh, it was way too successful. Um, it's, to this day, it's a multi-million dollar company. I, I'm no longer part of it. And I ended up, instead of writing 30 books, I ended up with 30 sales reps. <laughs> I was very good at business, but I didn't particularly like it. And uh, after I left the publishing house, I wrote and published 11 books. <laughs> So that, that that was sort of interesting, you know, you would think, of course, I knew many people in publishing, so it wasn't very difficult for me to, to find outlets. Um, uh, your readers shouldn't look to me for outlets now. I know nothing about publishing as it currently exists. Um, but so, so, you know, I would find uh, myself successful. Uh, usually the challenges didn't come from failure. They came from success. The successes would uh, often make me uneasy. Uh, they would say, well, there, there's got to be a, there's another mountain beyond this mountain. And, and uh, what will be the next step? Where will I go next? Hmm. 
that's uh, that's so interesting. So, so successes would lead you to a milestone, and you would wonder what's next, and that would make you restless, and that itself became a challenge as to choosing your next opportunity. And I can see uh, uh, just looking at your biodata, the the through line. I mean, you started, uh, you had a successful career in public health. Is that correct? That's correct. And then uh, you went on to uh, uh, start pre-foundations. Now, what these uh, foundations all similar in nature? Yes. Or what they, so so the, a major theme that goes through my social, political, economic life, I basically tell people that I'm a radical Democrat with a small R and a small D. Hmm. I've learned, you know, even with interpersonal relationships, if, if you have, you're having difficulties and the two or three people around you aren't able to solve them. It means you don't have the right people at the table or you don't have enough people at the table. Well, we have global problems. And it's my belief that if you have global problems, you need more than a few people from a few countries at the table attempting to solve them. That, that you know, we don't have all everyone playing at the same table, working together at the same table. And so you need to expand the table all the time. Um, we can solve global, we can solve the largest problems if we have the largest number of people at the table. So part of my life is just simply saying, okay, so how can I get people who have traditionally been shut out from the place at the table uh, 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 providing them a chair? Yes, so essentially uh, you're getting a diverse uh crowd to the table so that you can have these uh, diversity and uh, multiple point of views so that out of that collaboration and uh, different ways of thinking, uh, you could emerge a consensus that's for the greater good of the problems. Right. That we're and and people who've been traditionally denied a place at the table, uh, you know, it, it, it's sort of interesting. As you know, I do a lot of work in Africa hmm. and um, my friends, it's very interesting. I've done a lot of work in Rwanda and Burundi where they, where they had the genocides in 1994. And since then, they have become the world's leading experts on trauma healing and PTSD. In fact, some of their work is now being used in inner cities in, uh, in the United States and being used in prisons in the United States. And it's sort of interesting. I will meet people here who decide they're going to go to Rwanda and uh, do PTSD, they're trained in psychology or something, and their mental health, and they're going to do some PTSD work. And my friends in Rwanda say, well, first of all, we've got that down. Secondly, they look at what we have in the U.S. in dealing with that sort of work is seriously lacking because it almost always lacks a community context. Hmm. That, that we look at mental health as an individual thing to be solved by an individual counselor with an individual patient or client, whatever you wish to call them, um, not something that um, impacts or is part of the fabric of the community that has to be brought in to deal with such problems. And so I always warn people who think they're going to be doing that. I said, go as a student. Don't go as a mental health counselor. Go as a student. You have so much to learn. Yes, that's uh, that's an interesting uh, point right there. But if you but, but the point being is, if you went to a graduate school of psychology in the United States, you're not likely to hear the Burundian or the Rwandan point of view at all. Yes, that's uh, that's generally been the experience of a lot of uh, graduates uh, for sure. Um, 
So talking about uh, universities, and I would like to take a step back the memory lane here again. And mm-hmm. one of the colleges that you went to uh, was Oxford University. And I'm mm-hmm. curious, like, what was Oxford? I know Oxford's one of the prestigious universities coming from India. Uh, you know, Cambridge and Oxford were the one of the top universities that uh, most people uh, wanted to go to. So having gone to Oxford, what was your experience like then? And what was England like back in those days? Well, can we back up a minute? I actually want to talk about my undergraduate education. Absolutely. Yes. Let's do um, that. Uh, so I went to a college, Williams College. It's a very prestigious private college in Massachusetts um, with a $2 billion endowment for um, 2,000 students. Frankly, I find that appalling, but that's neither here nor there. They had everything for everyone. Mm. Uh, to this day, it is like that. And, um, and the college then and now, while it has good scholarship programs, they have plenty of money. I mean, they have more money than they can possibly use. Um, did have many, many very, very wealthy people. One um, percent class, we, we could say. Mm. And it, it was a sort of interesting experience. Here I was from a lower middle class experience in New York City, meeting friends who, you know, had a long weekend that they'd go off skiing in Switzerland, you know, for a long weekend, you know, and, and, and this, was, this was their life, you know, and I had to work every vacation I could just to make ends meet, and, and they'd be all over the world. Mm. At that time, I have to tell you, I didn't envy them for that. Many of the folks, I made some good friends, usually of the same social class that I was. We sort of cocooned. Um, I always tell the experience, you know, that every night at the house I lived with, people would go out and buy pizzas. I didn't have money for pizza, and I was too ashamed to tell people about that, and so I would retreat to my room, even though these were my friends or these were the people I lived with. But the interesting part of that experience, I got, I got a stellar education. I mean absolutely top-notch, personal, personalized education. Three students in a class was a common number. Um, uh, I learned how to write really well, uh, um, you know, and, and the, the, the academic education couldn't be, couldn't be, it was better than my Oxford education, frankly. I didn't like the experience. I wouldn't do it again. Um, uh, it was a difficult environment, again, socially uh, well, and I said, while I didn't like many of the, uh, the my fellow students of this uh, social class, their parents to me were absolutely fascinating. I mean, they were parents that went off, you know, from their day job at a bank, you know, running a bank to form a leprosy uh, clinic in the middle of India. They'd go on, uh, they, they published National Geographic. They'd go off um, uh, to do ecological restoration before ecological restoration was even heard of mm. in certain parts of Africa. Um, they'd run eye clinics uh, um, in, in Mumbai, I remember one in particular. They would, pub- they would run publishing houses. They, they did incredible, extraordinary things. I can look back at that now. I couldn't have I couldn't have put it into words at the time, but I can put it into words now that I resolved at that point that I wanted to be a millionaire without the money. I wanted to be able to do all the things that they were able to do without the money to do them, and I did. I look at my life and I'm saying, well, if I look at that list of things 
my list is great, and I did it without money. Turned out I didn't need it. I needed my wits. I needed a lot of luck along the way. I, I needed these amazing people that I met on my journey to, to, to lead me on. And um, it was an extraordinary experience. So I look back at my education and say, you know, had I to choose it again, I probably wouldn't have chosen that one. But I sure got an amazing amount of it. It was extraordinary. Mm. Now, Oxford. So I, I read, I, I read, you say you read, but I remember the first day somebody asked, what are you reading? And I you know, told them about my most recent book. And now when you read, you read a subject. It's um, uh, um, how you speak at Oxford. And, and I, I was reading Medieval Studies, which is the best place in the world to do that. And the faculty, were, my tutors were great, the professors were great. I liked most of the students. Um, even though many of them drank too much, I, I forgive them that. They had funny accents, as I do. Um, uh, but the best part of the experience, Oxford had these long vacations, really long vacations. And my fellowship was paid in dollars at a time when the British pound was soaring against the dollar. And I was always short for money. As I, I said, my, 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 my life is filled with these stories of running out of money and good things happening. And I ended up, long story, but I ended up with a job working in Iran. At the time, I had no interest in Iran, no interest in Islamic culture, no interest in anything to do with Iran, other than the fact that I had a former housemate at Williams who um, came from a very wealthy family there. And, and of course, the internet didn't exist in those days. And I can remember taking out a map of the world and saying, okay, what I really wanted to do was to see Europe, but I didn't have any money to do it. And so I said, how far can I go, get a job, earn some money, and see Europe on the way? And on the way back, and that's exactly what I did. Again, long story about the job I had. But I managed to travel overland, hitchhiked from England all the way to Iran. I worked in this beautiful city of Isfahan. Um, I learned how people from a very different culture lived. I learned a lot of politics, I have to tell you very quickly. Um, I had made some lifelong friends there, and it changed the entire direction of my life. And it was basically because Oxford had uh, long vacations, and I had run out of money, and I couldn't even afford to stay anywhere. Hmm. That's, uh, that's such a fascinating story. So one, one of the questions that comes to mind, and I, I can see a certain theme here uh, from your sharing, is that uh, you mentioned here that you know running out of money was kind of like uh, the story of your life, but then good things happen. Oh, yes, every time. And, <laughs> and no wonder uh, leading a nonprofit organization like Friendly Water and, uh, or any other foundation, which is always looking for fundraising, having a leader with that mindset definitely uh, makes a big difference. And I think what... what well, the way I, I have to add there, the way I look at it is the gods give the money. I'm, I, I just ask. I'm not required that anyone give. I'm just required to ask. That's great. Ask and you shall receive. I like that. Or if I don't receive, there's a reason. That's, yeah, that's a great way to kind of, uh, yeah, look at it as well. And, I, you know, and the other thing you also mentioned about, you know, while you were going through that process uh, back at uh, uh, your undergrad uh, school at Williams College, and, uh, I mean, you really were inspired by the parents of your friends, yes. not, not particularly the friends themselves, but the parents yes. who were doing amazing things uh, and doing a lot of altruistic projects across the mm -hmm. globe. So 
it seems like somewhere along the line, I, it appears that you may not have known, as Steve Jobs said, that you cannot uh, connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking mm. backwards. Uh, but do you think uh, those times, having watched all those uh, people making the difference out there in the grand scheme of things in the big world out there, did that influence your choices down the road in terms of choosing it, the kind of projects you do and the product it, foundation? It did, it did radically uh, in several ways. Now, first of all, I was in college in 1967 to 71. It was the years of the Vietnam War, friends being drafted, not coming home. Um, of course, I was opposed to the war. Um, I was also uh, not particularly happy with the lack of political dialogue that the people around me had. And, and we were... It was very difficult to get thinking space. I actually wanted to get away from all of that by going to England. Um, it, it, England wasn't actually my plan. And that, that, happened, that was a happy accident, too. Um, that really wasn't part of my plan, but I was so happy actually to get away from the, the political stew that was here. Now, again, I was working, I was doing medieval studies, and uh, when I went to Iran, I saw some horrible things that opened my eyes to some of the ways the world works. And so, and again, my thinking was getting wider. I, I no longer could see myself as a medieval studies professor. And so I went back to school at something called the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago, hmm. where I studied with Hannah Arendt and began a long love affair with Gandhi. Um, and Hannah Arendt did me the great favor of dying in the middle of my dissertation. Oh. I never did. I never did finish it. Wow, that, that was just fine. Um, uh, I got what I needed from that experience uh, and moved on to to other things from there. But again, I was getting wider and um, was looking for new social, political, economic ways of looking things that went beyond the usual Western canon. Hmm. You know, one of the things that uh, just from listening to you that uh, seems so uh, remarkable is your ability to make peace with uh, when the desired outcome does not happen and uh, really uh, just taking the best lessons from it and moving on. And I think that's such a valuable lesson uh, for audiences because uh, having, uh, you know, we have uh, we have two doctoral. I mean, I, I have two doctoral uh uh, folks in my family, and mm-hmm. uh, and I know what it takes to uh, go for your PhD and dissertation, and the kind of amount of effort and uh, research that goes into it. And no, I have a daughter that's finishing a dual PhD right now. So I, I oh wow! Congratulations on that. That's Thank great. You. That's great. So. And so I'm a little curious about this experience early on, and I would believe this was uh, in the 60s, 1967, 65? Mm-hmm. Yes. So w- one question that comes to mind is, uh, were there any specific uh, people that you idolized, your mentors growing up, or uh, who fascinated you back then that mm-hmm. you wanted to uh, become like? Now, that's a great question. And it's one that haunts me somewhat to this day, uh, the lack of mentors. Um, I didn't have them. Mm. Um, it would have been great to have had them. 
Um, and it's very interesting. I have colleagues that I've spoken with in different parts of the world, and they lament the same thing. These incredible people, I said, but you know, could have gone so much further if, uh, or could have done so much more if I had a mentor. Now, I learned later, later to latch on to these extraordinarily incredible people and not let go. Uh, but uh, early, I didn't have them. Um, I was sort of the black sheep in the family. Um, uh, I was very academically oriented and some would say academically gifted. And, uh, my father, to my knowledge, never read a book. Um, my mother did read some, but, it, you know, academic things were, they were very proud of me, of course, they, they, very much so. Um, but the, the, there were no mentors. I, you know, it, it, it's interesting, when I look back at it, I'm fascinated by mathematics and physics. And I went to a specialized science high school, very competitive, and I was very good at them. But you know, having graduated from there, I didn't know what a physicist did for a living. I didn't know what a mathematician did for a living. I didn't know what a chemist did for a living. I mean, you know, the big smell factory in New Jersey was right across the river. I had no idea that that came out of a factory. It, it's fascinating what I didn't know. I mean, I was excellent at physics, and I was excellent at chemistry, and I was great at math, and I had no idea that you did anything other than pass tests. Hmm. I look back at that and say, how could that have happened? You know, how, and again, I, I had this fabulous high school education, but it missed that element. I mean, you know, where were the mentors who were chemists or physicists or mathematicians? There were none. And, and to this day, my, I think my path might have been very, and music, well, that's another subject, but my path might have been very, very different had they existed. Wow. Yeah. I mean, uh that's uh, that's really interesting. And uh, so tell us about. I think that's true in schools today, or even more true today. Hmm. Yes. And uh, so, why would you say that? Why is it too uh, true today in uh, today's schools? Um, because they're so focused on tests and more tests and more tests and ranking and competition, and less so of the beauty of what comes in mathematics. Yes. I mean, I mean, I don't remember the word, you know, I, I took all kinds of advanced math in high school. I don't remember the word beauty ever being mentioned even once. Hmm. Definitely, I mean, the application of the knowledge acquired, I think uh, mm. that's a whole other dimension that uh, still uh, a lot of people uh, go through their education cycle and uh, yet don't get to explore. So, uh, I was never taught what I was before. Yeah, I mean, it was a game. It was again, it was a competitive game. I was just supposed to do as well as I could and do better than the people around me. That that was that was the incentive. Yes, uh, I still can't change the oil on my car well. <laughs> So, uh, so that's that's very interesting, and thank you for sharing. And now we're going to switch some gears here, and mm -hmm. I would like to ask you about your hobbies and interests. And I'm looking at uh, your fascination for exotic musical instruments. Ah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, tell us more about that, please. So, in my family, we did have a bunch of failed, uh, excuse me, not failed musicians. We did have some musicians. They were also thought of as black sheep. One was a trumpeter for the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. One, I think, played for the Argentine Philharmonic. My 
father used to have the most beautiful voice you could imagine. I'm told that he once had the opportunity for a scholarship at the Brooklyn Opera Company, but to the day he died, there was not a single song in the entire world, world where he knew the words. He just couldn't remember any words in any language. Didn't matter. My mother used to sing as well, but music was for much looked down upon. I, I could pick up from an early age, I could pick up any musical instrument and in 20 minutes be playing something. It was always the case. Wow. And uh, it was discouraged. I had um, uh, wonderfully awful experiences with the saxophone. I won't get into those now. Um, uh, I grew up in a Jewish family. I learned cantorial music, and I was a very good singer, but that wasn't going anywhere. And I am sitting in my dorm room. But the, the interesting thing about all these musical experiences, none of them ever fit. None of them called out and said, wow, that's you. That's you. So I'm sitting in my dormitory room in January of 1971. It's snowing. It's snow at Williams College. Writing an English paper. I had no idea what the paper was on. It was 2 a.m. And this music comes on the radio and it's like a jolt, a, a, a huge jolt. And and the inner thought was, wow, that's the music inside me. What is it? And at the end of um, the music, the music announcer simply said that was the music of A.K. Narayan Swami playing the Veena music of South India. Wow. And, and that's all he said. In the morning, I got up, I handed in my paper, it was about 8.15 a.m. I ran to the university library through the snow, and I went to the Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, we didn't have the internet those days. Opened up the Encyclopedia Britannica, looked up V-E-N-A, there was nothing there. V-I-N-A, there was nothing there. Ah, V-E-E-N-A. <laughs> no picture. And it said... Seven-stringed musical instrument, sacred to the goddess Saraswati, played in South India, made from the wood of the jackfruit tree. Now, this wasn't very helpful. I had no idea what a seven-stringed musical instrument would look like when I first saw one. I was shocked. Um, I had no interest at all in South India. Who was Saraswati? No clue. And what the heck was a jackfruit? <laughs> but I knew that someday I would be playing the Vina. And it came to pass. Wow, congratulations. And I actually became, I was very, very, very good at it. Um, uh, I basically finished three years worth of lessons in seven months. There's a wonderful story about all of that. I played for the Chakachari of Shringari, basically the Pope of South India, and 5,000 people um, in, after playing for only seven months. And I developed something of a reputation. Of course, I have no teacher anymore, and therefore I don't play. I don't play at all anymore. But um, it was a, 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 an extraordinary experience of just finding the music that was inside me. And I had no idea how that happened. My Vina teacher, who spoke no English and I spoke no Tamil, she would play the first line of music, I'd know the next five minutes, and she she would look at me and say, hmm, past lives. You know, I always tell people I don't believe in past lives or anything like that, or it doesn't interest me very much, but here I am living experience of it. 
That's, that's so beautiful, so inspiring. Right. So, again, I don't believe in it, but here it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's incredible. That, uh, and, and so, you know, I, I love exotic musical instruments of all kinds, and if I had another lifetime, that's likely what I would do. And I raised two children who are both in the music field. Fantastic. That's congratulations on that. And, and we used to play as a music group. Um, uh, actually, there's a sign on my door that says Shanti Nikaitan, right, uh, right on the house. Uh, and, of course, that was the name of the famous art school of arts uh, in founded by Rabindranath Tagore in Bengal. But it also means uh, either garden of peace or knowledge of peace. And it's on our house. And we became a little music group, and we used to play at South Indian music festivals in Seattle and in Portland. And uh, my my old one would sing, my younger one would sing and play the flute, and I'd play the vina. That's such an incredible story, David. Thank you for sharing that. Very inspiring. Mm-hmm. It's like seven months, and you perform, do a public uh, performance. Uh, that's that's such a great. Uh, Incredible, inspiring story there. So that brings well, me. Another lifetime, I would have been a musician. Well, I would have to believe you because I think your entire family seems to be in the uh, music uh, with an eye, a year for music, and mm-hmm. sounds like uh, you're still continuing with that uh, tradition of uh, playing exotic instruments. So that's mm-hmm. that's really great. But so, you, you didn't t- you didn't tell people what I actually said in my bio. So, yeah, why don't you share? (laughs) What I said is I have all these degrees and I'm willing to trade some for for exotic For an exotic musical instrument, yes, yes, that's uh, definitely, uh, that that is very interesting. So one thing I do want to get to is uh, having traveled all over uh, Europe and Africa and uh, India as part of your projects Mm -hmm. with uh, Friendly Water and so what would you say, what? Is some of the favorite places that you like to travel, and what is it? What is it about this place that you? Value oh, that's so much? easy. My home is South India. My home is Tamil Nadu. Actually, I have a second home there. And and had had friendly water not come along, I would have retired and spent four or five months a year there. Oh, wow. uh, it's not to be now. Although I try to get there at least once a year. Um, at this point, there a place a little bit north of Madurai, in uh, far South India, and. Um, so I tell the experience, um, well, I won't yet tell you the story of how I met my Indian mother, but I tell the experience of how I was on a train from Chennai to Dindigal, little dusty town at the time uh, where I was getting off, where I was going to the home of my would-be Indian mother. And looking out the window as, as things whizzed by, and there were water buffalo, by the way, there were very few water buffalo left. And the palm trees, and many of the palm trees are cut down now, and these rock formations, and the internal feeling of, wow, I'm home now. I'm home. No other place on earth feels that way to me. Um, I have an adopted Indian sister who is a neonatologist. Uh, It works in Changalpat, south of Chennai. And when she comes to visit me here, she always says, oh, David, you don't really live here. You're just camping. (laughs) Because I love everything about um, um, my experience there. And I've been going back and forth for 40 years. Yes. So that, that, that's clearly my favorite place on earth. Um, there were other places and cultures that I felt akin to. Um, um, I liked Iran very much. Um, I liked the art in particular. 
And the Iranians have a great sense of humor. And actually, I should back up. You know, the, the, the uh, language Farsi is a made-up language, like many languages, like Swahili and whatever. But Farsi was made out of the work of two poets, um, two 9th century, 10th, 10th century poets. And so the entire language is a poem. Um, every word is a metaphor. Every word has a double meaning. Every word is a pun. Uh, 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 the whole language is built that way. And it, it's extraordinary. And so if you just luxuriate in language, Farsi is it. Secondly, the, the uh, Iranians tend to be formal and funny at the same time. They, they knew they were more formal than everyone else. They dressed more formally. They had rituals for going through the door and sized places or whatever. Um, uh, the, if you want to refuse food, you actually have to refuse it three times because they don't believe you the first two. <laughs> the custom is not to believe you the first two times. Um, and they have all kinds of ritualized behavior like that. But they know it and they laugh about it. Um, uh, it, it of course, it, there may have been a time that they didn't laugh about it. There may have been a time that it was simply part of their culture and it was on coming in contact with the West, you know, and the efficiency of the West, et cetera, et cetera, that they began to see the humor of trying to blend you know, what Westerners expected versus what was traditional in their own culture, including including the, the parts of Western culture that they had adopted for themselves. And uh, uh, so I have truly amazing, wonderful memories of my time in Iran. Um, and then you also have a taste for uh, sordid uh, spiders in Cambodia. Oh, know? yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about that. How did that oh, come about? <laughs> so... When my daughter was 16 or 17, so I have this adopted Indian brother who um, went, this is an interesting story too, he's a child a doctor and a child psychiatrist, uh, psychiatrist, and he went to Cambodia in 1995 on a one-year contract to retrain the entire Cambodian mental health workforce because almost all of it had been killed by Pol Pot. So they had no child mental health workers at all. And he expected to go for one year, and he has stayed now for 22 years. And, and so my daughter, my older daughter, had the opportunity to fly into, actually, into Siem Reap, to Angkor Wat, where we met my brother Bumi, and they got to go to um, um, Siem Reap. And they took a bus back from there to Phnom Penh, where he works. And there's a famous town. Um, right about halfway between Phnom Penh and um, uh, Angkor Wat, and which is famous for sautéed spiders. They're tarantulas. And um, they will tell you, if you talk to the people there, they will tell you, oh, we've been eating them forever. But in fact, anthropologists will tell you they started eating them because of starvation under Pol Pot. Well, actually, a little later, around 1980, around 1980, they started eating the spiders, and it became somewhat of a delicacy. Well, at any rate, going through um, uh, this town, my daughter asked for spiders, and they went to three different stands, and they were all sold out. So I got to go to Underwat uh, later. I was, I, I was a dedication at my brother's mental health center, and um, 
traveling again, same bus, I, on a bus, and I told the driver I wanted to stop in this town to get some spiders, and everyone else on the bus said, oh, we want them too, we want them too. And um, so we got there around 5 p.m., and again, every single stand was sold out of, of the, the uh, famous um, Cambodian sauteed spiders. I told this story when I went to India in February. One of uh, Dr. Bumi's colleagues from Cambodia was there at my home, and I told him this story. He says, oh, I love spiders. I'll, when you come to Cambodia next, I'll cook them for you. Wow. <laughs> so, so I'm looking forward to that experience. I think I'm looking forward to that experience. <laughs> That's so great. So let me ask you this. I actually wanted to name one more country, if you like. If you sure, like. yeah, please. Country I haven't been to. Congo. Hmm. So, through Friendly Water, I have met the most amazing, extraordinary people from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Now, the Congo, you've heard this story before. The Congo is an interesting country. This is a country that from 1525 to 1880 suffered from slavery, but not slavery internal, basically people being dragged out. And the people being dragged out were their healthiest and able-bodied people that could be captured and sold on slave markets around the world, leaving behind women, young children, the sick, elderly, who would flee to the bushes uh, to escape being captured. And this happened for 350 years. After this 350-year period, when finally the slave trade was officially abolished, we have slavery today, but it was officially abolished around 1880, King Leopold came and found that automobiles needed uh, rubber for tires, and they also had a lot of gold. And he went, there was a population of 20 million when King Leopold went to start forcing people, chaining people, uh, killing people cutting off their hands and feet in order to get them to work the rubber plantations. When he went there, there were 20 million people. By the time he left, there were fewer than 10 million people. So that was the next stage, and that took us, takes us to about 1920. And they finally get their independence in 1960. They elect their first, the first democratically elected uh, president of any country in Africa, Patrice Lumumba, and within one year, the CIA kills him. Um, throwing that country into total chaos for the next seven, 60 years, 65 years, still in total chaos. And yet in the middle of this, the most extraordinary people I, you could possibly imagine I, I, I have met springing up from, from this country. Radically underpopulated for reasons, you know, it's as big as the entire United States east of the Mississippi River, um, but it only has 70 million people. They have a war going on in northeast Congo that's killed 7 million people since 1996. It's the biggest war in the world, much bigger than Syria, much bigger than Iraq. No one, no one talks about it. Um, we're doing this call on computer or cell phone. Our cell phones and computers don't work without the coltan that is stolen from the Congo, from, from northeastern Congo. But I don't want to go into the politics. The point is, I've met the most absolutely extraordinary people coming from the Congo, and I, I really like the opportunity to spend a lot of time there. Got it. So India, Congo, and uh, Iran, and uh, Cambodia were some of the travels that you were fascinated by. 
those, many more, but those are those. Those are the ones that come to mind. And so let me ask you this, and this is, uh, I'm curious, is having traveled uh, all these different countries and and what's now your definition of success and how would you define greatness? <laughs> greatness. You know, I never think about that in the least. Success. So I do my bit for the world. And we could call it Kant's categorical imperative. Um, if everyone would do their little bit for the world, like I do my bit for the world, we'd live in paradise. I think we'd live in paradise. Mm, that's you know, and, 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 um, but I have no way to convince people to do that except do it myself. And uh, whether I succeed, again, success is an odd word, because whether I succeed in physical terms is sort of irrelevant. I mean, we only have limited space and time on Earth. Our work's passed with us. Um, hopefully we leave behind a little legacy, a little taste of who we were and, and what we were about to, to other people around us. That's, that's really the best that can be hoped. Um, and that's very good. I shouldn't say the best that can be hoped because that's a, that's a really good thing. Um, but, but so I don't, I don't look at success. Uh, you know, I, I look, I look to see, okay, so what kind of new models, new ways of thinking, no new ways of feeling, new ways of being in the world could be something that um, we could share with each other. Now, again, I suspect the most important new ways of being, thinking and feeling are not going to come from the West, that they are going to come from elsewhere. I always have my um, ear to the ground, um, as it were. And, and again, when I see things like that, I try to latch on. I have I have so many extraordinary, extraordinary friends. Um, uh, I I know a woman. I'm going to give you two stories. Would you mind? Sure, go for it. So um, last week, my wife and I. Um, I have a friend in. Uh, Eastern Uganda. Eastern Uganda is a particularly wild place. The Lord's Resistance Army, the, 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 those are the Christian terrorists, come from there. The uh, United Democratic Front, those are Muslim terrorists, come from there. And they practice child sacrifice to this day, up to three a week for the last, uh, uh, from May through November. As they get slightly wealthier, there are more of them. The politicians pay for them. Um, Girls are sacrificed on Fridays, boys on Saturdays, children are stolen walking for water. And I met, almost by accident, online, this man named Gabula Milton Andrew, one of the great saints that walks the earth. And about 14 years ago, he decided he was going to fight, spend his life fighting child sacrifice. Many incidents. And along the way, he ended up with a school for 50 kids with HIV. A, an orphanage for 50 kids with HIV, a school for 375 kids with HIV, a vocational training institute for people with HIV, and he supports grandparents uh, whose children die of HIV and they take in the grandchildren. So in 2013, Gabula was going, I actually have been involved fairly directly in two rescues of children um, who were uh, going to be sacrificed. And that story I'm not going to tell. But he was trying to rescue this girl in early 2013. And the people who were doing the sacrifice knew he was coming. And they beat him to death, or so they thought. Um, he awoke. 
One kidney was totally destroyed. The other one was heavily, heavily damaged. But knowing Gabula, he wasn't going to take any money away from his work. And so he, recuper- he didn't go to the hospital. He recuperated at home for months and months and months. Never fully healed, but continued his work. Um, how I got more involved with him, I, that, I won't tell that story right now. But uh, last November, I'm hearing from friends of his. Again, by email and face, they like Facebook Messenger. They're all going to Gapless place to pay their last respects. And I'm, why? Why? So I call him up on the phone. You can do that these days. And he's lying in bed. He can't even lift his head off the pillow. And he tells me the story that, well, he knew he needed a kidney transplant. And, um, Knowing Gabula, he was going to do it on the cheap, and he had it done in the Uganda hospital where they don't do kidney transplants. They mismatched the transplant. They they connected it poorly, and he was dying. So my wife and I, with the help of another friend, airlifted him to Aga Khan Hospital in Kenya. He went in through the emergency room, 12 hours of surgery. They, uh, They fixed him up some. I made him stay in Kenya until he was more fully recovered, and that's a fun story, too. Um, he came back, but and he was fine, but it was clear over the last several months he's been declining, declining again. And so my wife and I looked at each other, and we said, can't let the haters win. So we took out a little bank loan, and um, he's now in Kenya, and he gets a kidney transplant from a real donor with a real match, with a real doctor in a good hospital tomorrow night. Wow. That's and, so good. Uh, and it was one of the happiest days I have had in years, just feeling that, wow, I have the resources to do that. Just, just the feeling that I had the resources to do that. That is no. very inspiring, and I really uh, that's very you commendable know. for you as well as your wife to you, uh, come together and uh, save, and it just uh, feels save a life. It just feels great. Um, it's not a matter of, oh, you know, you know I, he continues to thank me, and I'm continuing to thank him for the opportunity, because I, I think I'm as thankful about this whole thing as he is. And hopefully he'll be well, but we'll see. I'm, I'm going to be in Uganda in, in February, so, so uh, I'm hoping to see him then. His friend, I want to tell you about his friend. So his, he has a friend named Helen Tanyinga. And Helen Tanyinga, maybe 15 years ago, was an 11-year-old girl walking for water, and she was raped by somebody that she knew in the, in the community, was never brought to justice. Um, and she started something about 10 years ago called the Rape Hurts Foundation. And she takes in children who've been raped, usually by their own parents, I have to tell you. And she runs a hospital. She takes in victims of domestic violence. She's well known in the corridors of power, you know, advocating for, for rape and domestic violence victims. And she does extraordinary, extraordinary things with almost no money. Um, but I talk to her almost daily. And I feel so privileged to share the earth with these people. I have 20 more like that. You have no idea how rich my life is. And I don't have to. I don't have to give a dime. We just. I just know these people, and they know me, and we spend time um, uh, sharing our fears, our quote successes, if you will, um, what motivates us, uh, a little bit of prayer every once in a while. Um, 
But the fact that I get to walk on earth with people like this, to me, is extraordinary. No, that is, it's really what makes my life full. No, that is uh, incredibly inspiring, and uh, I'm really... Uh uh moved and touched and moved by your journey about uh, helping take on causes around the globe and helping people uh uh with uh with challenges and that's really really But you amazing. know sometimes it's not helping in the sense of physical help or monetary help sometimes it's just being there most yes. of the time the big help or the big difference is just being there yes I mean, there's that old phrase that says, don't just sit there and do something. The Quakers have turned it around and says, don't just do something, sit there. Mm. And uh, I don't mean that in a meditative sense. I'm not much of a meditator. But uh, just sitting there and being there for people is, 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 if that's all you can do, and if that's, you know, do it. Do it. You have no idea what difference it can make in other people's lives. Yes, just being a moral support and emotional support for somebody can be a big difference, definitely. No, that's great. And uh, we're going to switch gears here, David. Uh, yeah. are, I want to ask you a couple of questions. I know we're running uh, close to our uh, time limit here, but uh, and I want to respect your time, but I have a few questions that I would like to ask. I have time. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> uh, so one of the things that we uh, get questions from our audience, and this is in particular, is... That what is the biggest lesson or insight that you have learned about life in general that you would like to share with our audience besides uh, what you just shared? Was there anything else that comes to mind that you would like to uh, uh, leave our audience with? <laughs> <laughs> From my heart attack, life, consider the alternative. <laughs> it, it's, it's pretty good around here. <laughs> there are challenges, there are problems, there are opportunities. Most, most things are opportunities. Mm. And, and uh, opportunities to become more fully the people we were meant to be. Um, and that's really, if I wanted to say one thing about that is, you know, you only get this go round once, whether there's another go round or leave for somebody else to decide. I'm not much of a speculator, as you've heard. Um, you know, become fully the person you were meant to be. Yes. I couldn't agree more. Become the highest version of yourself and uh, make a difference. Yeah. One other question for you, David, on this front is, if you, if you could go back in time, and this is just a hypothetical situation, let's assume we have a time machine, and if you could go back in time and talk to your young self, your 25-year-old self, what advice would you give him? The 25-year-old? The 25-year-old self. Ah. You're a 25-year-old young David. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember myself at 25. I didn't like that person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, when I look back at it, I don't like that person very much. Um, uh, it would be um, take it easy and let it come to you. Mm. Take it easy and let it come to you. I, I was that. very driven. I was very high-powered. I lived much in my brain. Um, uh, I don't think I was a particularly nice person. Um I don't think I was any worse than anyone else out there. You know, I don't think of myself that way. Very driven, very hard driving, very intellectual um, uh, and uh, impatient. Mm. Uh, One other question uh, regarding that is uh, what books or a particular book that you've gifted or reread over the years? Anything that comes to mind? So... I read, I have read, and I read a lot of Tolstoy. Hmm. Uh, 
especially the short stories and the unliked later works. They don't like them because they're more people don't like them because they're moralistic. I think they're great. I love like I love the works of late Tolstoy. Mm-hmm. Um, I reread Gandhi, but more than Gandhi, I read its follower Vinoba Bhave, mm-hmm. uh, the great saint land reform organizer uh, in, of India. Very very profound man. Uh, I didn't like his politics much, um, but but he had so much to, to speak to us about about community and about what it means to walk the earth. And so I, I reread the uh, Noble Bobby quite a bit. Um, what else? No, that, those, those, that's probably my short list. Hmm. So Leo Tolstoy and Vinob Bhave. Mm-hmm. Uh, our next section is called the rapid fire round. These are just a set of fun questions, David. I'm going to ask Good. you and whatever comes to your mind. That's the first thought that comes to your mind. Okay. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And you can choose to elaborate on them if you, uh, if you want to, but these are again rapid fire round. So, mm-hmm. so the first question for you, David, is whose brain would you like to pick? Whose brain would I like to pick? Oh, dear. Probably Moats of Box. Hmm. Probably box spring. Hmm. Yeah, that that would do it for me. Okay. Uh, The second question is, if you could be successful in another profession, which would you choose? Music. Hmm. If you could have, the third question is, if you could have witnessed one event in history, what would that be? One event in history. Hmm. Well, certainly among them would be the Salt March, Gandhi Salt March, the Gandhi March in 1930. Yes. That would certainly that would certainly be among them. Yeah, the Sabarmati and Gandhi March. Right. Uh, yes. And then final question within the rapid fire round is: If you could have any message of your choice on a billboard, what would that be? As I said, become the best version of, of, of the person you were meant to be. That's so uh, beautiful. That's great. So with that, we go to our final section. It's called the wrap-up round. And uh, so the one question that I have for you is, David, what is your current personal passion project? And what are you looking forward to over the next 6 to 12 months? Oh, dear. So many. Huh. So we are doing a lot of work in uh, all over the world, but especially in Congo with, with, again, women who have been raped usually by the National Army or by United Nations people or whatever, and they're left with nothing. Their husbands leave them. They're left with kids. They're depressed. And um, through our water work, you know, the water work is water work and it's good and we get people healthy and we prevent cholera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, we bring people back to life. We, and, you know, we get so many stories about that. And we have more of that um, to, to go um, that, that we're heavily working on. I'm also working with a group. Ah, that's a good, good one. I'm working with a group called the Ogiek tribe in Kenya. The Ogiek are the traditional honey gatherers of the Mao Forest in Kenya. They've been there for a thousand years. They don't have money. They trade in honey. And I know that that rhymes. <laughs> um, 
and and they the traditional uh, economy of honey in the Mal forest, which is now under threat, um, and because of a lot of the clear cutting that's happened from outside forces, their their land doesn't hold water as well, and they're getting sick from bad water. And we're working on some water projects with the Ogiek tribe, and it's interesting to work with the Ogiek tribe because maybe seven or eight literate people in Swahili in the whole tribe. They're, the Ogiek is not a written language. Uh, 96% of the people are illiterate, and maybe 80% of them speak no languages other than Ogiek and Maasai. Hmm. And uh, we're, we're doing some work with them. I've met some extraordinary people that uh, we're going to be working with. Actually, we'll start work next month. Wow, that's so great. So I, I must mention, uh, for the benefit of the audience, the mission of the Friendly Water for the World is to expand uh, global access to low-cost clean water technologies and, mm-hmm. and information about health and sanitation through knowledge sharing, training, right. applied research, and community building. So, and, one- and if you have anyone out there that's from Seattle, on, um, on August 4th, our Ethiopia representative is coming to visit us, and he's not a great public speaker, but he's a fantastic cook. Mm. And so we are holding a, a dinner um, at uh, Finney Ridge Lutheran Church on Friday night, August 4th, 7 p.m. Um, admission is by donation. You have to reserve because we only have a limited number of seats, but I'm not going to ask for any money until you get there. Um, but it's going to be a fabulous Ethiopian food and displays, and I'll get to talk some and show some slides, and we're going to have fun. And you can find out about it on our website, FriendlyWater.net. Great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. Uh, one other question before we wrap it up here is uh, three things you're grateful for in life, David. Oh, okay. So first of all, my wife, um, uh, who's sharing this journey with me. Um, um, We met in a very funny way. We never dated. She actually moved into my house and uh, um, without my knowing it, by the way, and I forgot my key. That's a long story. We were living in a non-boss training center and she'd come for a training program. And we tell the story differently, I have to tell you. But the way I remember it is I forgot my key, so I knocked on the door. And this woman opened the door and said, Hi, my name is Ellen, and I'm living here now. <laughs> and that's how I met my wife, which is perfect for me at the time, because I wasn't going to date. I wasn't going to go date anybody. It was absolutely perfect, and we've been together since 1977. And uh, so th- that, that would be high on the list. Uh, other things grateful for. Again, that by path, through my path, I have met these most extraordinary people just about everywhere. And and I think much of that has come from the discipline of looking for them. It, it, you know, when, when it first happened to me, you know, it was an instinct that I should follow this person, or I should follow this person and find out what they're doing and what makes them tick. Now it comes sort of natural. I mean, I kind of assume that's the way I should act. You know, and when I find people like that, I gravitate to them. I don't look them dry, but we, I become part of their journey, and they become part of mine. And that, you know, and I'm just grateful for our paths having crossed. And I think that's available to just about everybody. So that's two. And number three, I get so much help. I, I began by saying, you know, I was great that you were lauding me, but, you know, my team and the people around me 
they, they, they really make me look good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, you know, I can't do it without them, and, and you know, I'm blessed by, by, you know, I do have the skill apparently of attracting more people to, to what I do, and and uh, and they always take it further than I would have. Um, and uh, you know, I've, I've been blessed that way to have found these most extraordinary people to work with. That's so great. Thank you for sharing that, David. Mm-hmm. And I want to acknowledge you uh, for for really being an inspiration and a leader in our community and showing us uh, the youth of this uh, community as to what is it, what does it mean to live a full life. And having heard about you or having got to know you a little better, it is so phenomenal and so inspirational to uh, to just really understand that what kind of an amazing journey that you've led, the values that you've lived by, and and the choices you've made in the service of the greater good. And it's so incredible about, you know, starting these uh, different foundations and uh, really making a difference and continuing to make a difference uh, with such passion, such enthusiasm, that uh, it is incredible. So really, really thank you for being a uh, cause in the matter, being a stand for the global causes that uh, uh, that we all need to really consider dedicating our lives for, and, uh, and really also, and being a role model for what it means to be a global citizen, not just... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, just uh, one particular living in a community, but like really living on a global level and really contributing to the world at large. So thank you for showing us a path, showing us what an inspirational journey could look like. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. And one final question. Uh, that's how we wrap up mm-hmm. our, our interviews. And the question is, why do you think people should listen to Wisdom of Friends. <laughs> what other wisdom is there? <laughs> uh, although sometimes I, I joke, you may even find more wisdom in your enemies. Hmm. No, that's uh, that's uh, definitely that'll stretch your mind a little bit. Absolutely, absolutely, because uh, criticisms is another source of uh, mm. lessons to be learned and understanding our blind spots. No, I totally agree with that. So again, uh, thank you so much again, David. I appreciate you uh, taking uh, time and uh, sharing with us your life's journey, your life's insights, and all for your authenticity and candid answers. I truly appreciated our conversation. Mm -hmm. And with that, uh, for uh, those of us listening, if you liked what you heard, please don't be shy. Share. With that, we'll wrap up. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Cal Aras. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, theglobalcontribution.com. To your friends and colleagues, be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous episodes. This has been a Seven Symphonies production. Join us next time for another edition of the Wisdom of Friends.